This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This program contains graphic images and discussion. Viewer discretion is advised. Okay, before I get started, I wanted to thank Carta, and I want to thank the organizers for inviting me to um, what so far has been a really interesting uh, symposium. Um, And as uh, Mark said, I'm going to talk about the evolution of the human skull, and it's going to kind of follow up a little bit on some of the the materials that were presented in in the first two talks. And so when we look at the, uh, the human skull, the, the skull of today's humans, we can see that it's pretty different from that of the Neanderthal that you see um, on the slide. You can see that the, today's uh, human skull has a kind of a smaller face that's kind of tucked underneath the brain case. And then we have a kind of a cranial uh, vault um, that is kind of much shorter and sort of taller than the elongated one that you see for the Neanderthal. And so there's these differences um, that have been talked about in the first two talks. And if I put up uh, another member of uh, other member of our own genus, the genus Homo, other than an anatol, you'd see that there are also these differences. Um, some of them are the same as the ones you see with the anatols, and some of them are different. Uh, so there's some kind of unique sort of features of the anatols. But in any case, um, the skull of uh, present-day humans is uh, quite distinctive. It looks very different from what we see um, in earlier uh, members of the genus Homo. So um, as you heard about in the first two talks, uh, we can use this distinctiveness as kind of a way to trace the emergence of our own lineage and the migrations of uh, members of our lineage uh, throughout the planet. And so uh, by looking at uh, the kind of anatomy, we can locate the emergence of uh, our lineage to Africa. Uh, we can also uh, couple this with genetic evidence, which, uh, which locates the origin of our lineage in Africa. And then genetic evidence coupled with uh, evidence from the anatomy can allow us to kind of trace the movement of our lineage outside of Africa and, and around the planet. And so this, uh, this uh, fossil from Herto in Ethiopia is kind of a good example of this, right? We can use these features as kind of a marker to trace the origins, to trace the migrations of our lineage throughout the planet. So this is, of course, uh, very fascinating, very interesting, um, and we want to sort of understand um, how our lineage emerged and how it moved around the planet. But there are other kind of questions that we can ask um, looking at this anatomy. So, for example, we could ask questions like, why don't our skulls look like those of other members of the genus Homo? Why do today's humans have such distinctive uh, anatomy of the skull? And we can ask questions about how rapidly did our distinctive anatomy um, appear, how rapidly did it appear, um, and uh, did it come in sort of all at once, or did it it come in over a longer period of time? And so these are kind of the questions that I would like to focus on today. Uh, focusing on these uh, questions, not so much using this anatomy as a marker for tracing the emergence of our lineage and the migrations of us around the planet, but actually trying to understand why we look the way we do um, and how rapidly um, this came about. 
And so in particular, my goal is to try to dispel what I think are two sort of misconceptions about the evolution of the human skull. So this first one is that um, misconception number one is that all differences between the skulls of today's humans and Neanderthals or all differences between the skulls of today's humans and other members of the genus Homo, so not, not the Neanderthals, are adaptive. And so adaptive is a term that's used by evolutionary biologists. But what I mean by this in this context is that there were some sort of functional differences between, say, our skull and the skull of the Neanderthals. They sort of they functioned in a kind of a different way. And so these differences um, indicate something about differences in function between us and these other members of the genus Homo. So over the years, there have been a number of kind of uh, adaptive sort of explanations for these features. Um, and so on the one hand, are these adaptive explanations for the Neanderthals. So one sort of common one is thinking about Neanderthals' uh, skull anatomy as somehow related to the kind of cold environments that they were living in and evolving in. Um, another explanation has to do with the fact that uh, there's evidence that maybe they were using their, their jaws kind of as a third hand, um, and so that there was uh, kind of this mechanical loading that was associated with that, and that might have had some kind of consequences on just the overall anatomy of the skull. On the other hand, there are kind of adaptive explanations for sort of thinking about, well, why do we actually look different? So why do today's humans look so distinctive? And probably the most fascinating and and maybe kind of interesting and exciting one is to sort of think about that it may have something to do with um, speech. Um, Because, of course, speech and language are so important about what uh, characteristics about what makes us human. And so there could be something about our skull that has to do with the ability to produce the sounds that allow us to um, create languages. But there's an alternative. Um, There's another kind of possibility that I think we should sort of seriously consider. And so there's this evolutionary process that we call genetic drift, Um, And genetic drift is this process where there are these chance changes that happen in populations just because any population is finite in size. And so if you think about different regions of the genome, so different genetic loci, and there's going to be different alleles at those different uh, loci, um, and those alleles are going to be in certain frequencies in kind of any kind of human population. But by this uh, process of genetic drift, you can have shifts in the frequencies of those alleles, these kind of chance changes. And just the fact that the population is finite in size means just because of this kind of sampling process that happens as uh, parents uh, give rise to offspring and offspring give rise to further offspring, you have this process of genetic drift acting. And so if some of these alleles, some of these loci, underlie the anatomical differences that we see in the human skull, then you're also going to get these these changes that you see um, in the skeletal anatomy as well. And so you can imagine kind of a situation where you had some sort of an ancestral population to Neanderthals, an ancestral population uh, to Neanderthals and, and kind of us, um, and, but then they diverged from each other over a period of hundreds of thousands of years, and so there would have been lots of time for this process of genetic drift to act and produce at least some of the differences that we see in today's skulls. And so my colleagues and I have tried to address this idea, the idea that maybe a lot of these differences could actually be non-functional. They could actually be due to this process of genetic drift. And we try to address it over a kind of a number of different ways, a number of different directions. But I want to present today is kind of a new kind of approach that we've taken um, and some new results on this. 
So in order to kind of address this, we have to have some way of kind of quantifying the anatomy. And you've seen this already in the first two presentations. So we use these kind of methods of geometric morphometrics where we take these kind of anatomical locations or landmarks or, or semi-landmarks and kind of use them to characterize the kind of size and shape of the, of the skulls of, of, of today's humans, but also Neanderthals, to really uh, kind of document the variation that we see. And then we take this data and we, um, we, we um, analyze it um, in a particular way. And um, the approach we've taken is we use kind of models from quantitative evolutionary theory to kind of make predictions about what we would expect if the divergence uh, was entirely due to this process of genetic drift. And then we compare that with the observed data and see if it looks like it's consistent or not. And so here uh, come some of the results, and um, you're looking at these two-dimensional plots, which are kind of similar to what you've seen in the first two talks. Um, they kind of, what you're looking at is actually a little bit different, but you have these same kind of axes of uh, variation, these principal component axes. Um, and uh, the black arrows are kind of the kind of observed patterns of variation. And this is for a comparison between Neanderthals and different populations of today's humans, um, and also between uh, a little more ancient kind of humans we call Upper Paleolithic, um, individuals from the Upper Paleolithic from Eurasia. And so that's what the black arrows are showing. But what the uh, red ellipses are showing are the expectations if everything was entirely due to genetic drift. And what you can see here is that the black arrows are actually within the red ellipses, which suggests that these, um, these patterns of variation we see in the, in the actual empirical data are consistent with this process of genetic drift. So this was an interesting result. It fits with some of the other analyses that um, my colleagues and I have done um, over the years. But one thing you might be asking is, well, maybe it's consistent with genetic drift, but do we actually have kind of the ability or the power to kind of detect deviations from this model of genetic drift? Could the data sort of look like it's consistent because we don't really have an ability to, to detect deviations from that? And so one way we, um, we took to sort of address this is we did another comparison. And in this case, we're comparing us, Homo, Homo sapiens, um, to a number of different species of um, great apes. So we're comparing with uh, common chimpanzees, we're comparing with bonobos, and we're comparing with gorillas. And what you can see is that in the same analysis, the same kind of analysis, you can see that the situation is very different. So in this case, all of the, the black arrows are most cases in, in the different projections. The black arrows are outside the red ellipses, which suggests that it's inconsistent with a divergence by, by genetic drift. So what this gives us confidence that we actually have an ability to detect deviations from this process of genetic drift. And so the situation that we see in HOMO within our own genus actually looks kind of different from the situation we see when we compare Homo sapiens to other uh, great apes. So the next misconception um, that I want to talk about is that the modern human skull appeared rapidly about 200,000 years ago in Africa. And the first uh, presentation by Professor Ublin talked about this um, some, and so I'm going to cover some of the same ground. So when we actually look at the fossil record, what we see is we don't see a kind of an abrupt appearance of this kind of modern anatomy, this anatomy that kind of links us, uh, these fossils with today's humans. We actually see kind of as old as maybe 300,000 years ago from, from Jebel Road, we see faces that look similar to today's humans, but the brain cases don't look very similar to today's humans. 
And then kind of more recently in time, we see um, kind of more of these features, like today's humans. Um, And so it seems like it's kind of this gradual and sort of lengthy process where you get this accumulation of these features through time. So it doesn't seem to be a very kind of abrupt or sort of punctuated appearance of modern human anatomy at 200,000 years ago. So a lot of this, what I'm talking about, is kind of, a, kind of a bigger sort of sweep of human evolution. So we're looking back kind of many hundreds of thousands of years and sort of tracing this very longer kind of period of the emergence of our lineage. But there's actually some events that happened actually quite recently in time, which I think were very important um, in, in sort of um, determining, you know, what the skull anatomy of today's humans looks like. And what I'm talking about is agriculture. So in the last 10,000 years, we have the emergence of agriculture. And sort of step back a minute and sort of think that, so before 10,000 years ago, every single human on the planet, all the foods that they were eating were coming from exclusively hunted or wild gathered resources. And then after 10,000 years ago, you have the emergence of agriculture in many different parts of the world, and agriculture spreads um, very widely. And basically today, almost everyone gets their food from kind of agriculture, so from domesticated animals and domesticated um, crops. And so there's this massive transition in our diet and our subsistence that's happened just within the last 10,000 years. So this is a very recent event, but it's a kind of a a huge uh, shift in our life ways. And so for a number of years, um, researchers have kind of speculated and also collected data to suggest that this, this transition to agriculture actually had a pretty profound effect on our skulls. And so the basic idea was is you go from very kind of hard sort of foods to much kind of softer foods. And because of these softer foods, you had a much kind of lower, some mechanical loading of your jaws. And because of the lower mechanical loading of your jaws, you have these changes um, in the anatomy of the skull. And so this figure right here is kind of a kind of a reconstruction where you go from the black outline of a kind of a hunter-gatherer to the blue outline of an agriculturalist. And so this basic idea is that there's this big shift that happens with agriculture that explains some of the distinctiveness of the skulls of people living today. And so this has been tested, actually, um, on a number of uh, kind of uh, samples, but mostly at a regional scale. And so a number of years ago, a former graduate student of mine um, and uh, another colleague uh, wanted to test this at a much kind of larger scale, at a global scale. And so we collected samples of uh, skull anatomy, uh, documented skull anatomy at a global scale. Um, so we wanted to kind of really understand kind of the geographic distribution, but we collected our samples in a particular way. So within most geographic regions, we actually had a matched sample of a hunter-gatherer group and uh, with uh, an agriculturalist group. So for example, in France, we have a Mesolithic sample, so Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, matched with a Neolithic sample, so Neolithic agriculturalists. And so this really gave us a a sample that really allowed us to really sort of think about how these shifts in diet would uh, would have affected the anatomy of the skull. So we collected these kind of anatomical landmarks that you've seen um, a lot, you know, earlier in my talk and also in the other talks. And actually, um, 
you know, maybe a distinction to make is actually so far everything that I've been talking about hasn't, hasn't really technically been the skull. It's been technically about what we call the cranium, right? So anatomically, the skull is composed of the cranium and the mandible, the mandible being the lower jaw. Um, so I've mostly just been talking about the cranium. But in this study, we actually uh, are talking about both the cranium and the mandible. Um, and this is important because the lower jaw is really um, kind of implicated in these ideas about chewing and the mechanical demands of chewing. So let me walk you through a few results here. So the analysis that we did really allowed us to sort of figure out what are the different factors that contribute to the variation that we see in our samples, the variation in in skull form that we see across different individuals. And what you're looking at on these graphs here, so the top is the cranium, the bottom is the mandible, and what you're looking at is that this distribution, so so how far out it is, so um, the closer it is to, you know, the 400 end of the x-axis, or the closer it is, uh, or closer into the 50 end of the axis, that's further in. So if it's further out, closer to 400, it means that it's kind of a more important factor. If it's closer to the 50 side, it means that it's kind of a smaller uh, factor. And what it turns out actually is the most important sort of source of variation is actually individual level variation kind of within groups. And so this tells us any human group or any human population is there's actually a lot of um, individual variation. So if you take a human group from anywhere in the world and you kind of look at their skull form, there's a lot of differences actually between different individuals just from within that group. So everyone's kind of an individual. Everyone sort of looks kind of different from everyone else. And this is kind of an important thing to kind of point out is actually when you look at most features of kind of anatomy or morphology, um, most of the differences are actually found within any human group. Um, and, if you, and when you look at the, uh, the genome, you actually mostly see the same picture. So most of the variation in humans is actually found within groups. So we found this too. But the next kind of most important uh, factor is uh, what we call kind of population history. Um, and so this is... Um, Populations that are more closely related to each other, had a more kind of shared history, are going to look more similar in their skull anatomy than populations that had a more kind of distant um, shared uh, or a shorter shared history, a more distant relationship. But then finally, um, there is an effect of diet. So this is kind of hard uh, versus uh, soft diets. Um, and so uh, diet, uh, although it's kind of the least important factor, um, it is a kind of a significant effect. And so it does seem to have, at a global scale, have actually shaped the anatomy of today's skulls. So we can see is that these kind of different factors that are sort of overlaid on top of each other, um, and this combination is what allows us to understand the skull of today's humans. So just uh, to kind of look at a little bit of some of the details a tiny bit. So uh, for some of the factors that we saw that were some of the aspects of the skull that were related to diet were in the mandible, this lower jaw. But there's also um, parts of the cranium that we saw this. So what you're looking at here is, is points that are documenting the attachment site of one of the major kind of muscles involved in chewing. And what you can see is in yellow are the kind of hard diet individuals, and in purple are the softer diet individuals. And so you can see that this aspect is being, um, is being shifted by the shift in diet. Okay. So kind of in summary, um, why do the skulls of today's humans look the way they do? 
So I think that many of the difference between today's humans and earlier Homo may be due to this process of genetic drift. So these kind of chance changes that, you ha- that happen in populations just because they're finite in size are probably explaining a lot of variation we see across kind of present-day human fo- populations and their skulls, but also differences between Neanderthals and us and, Neander- and, us and other uh, members of the genus Homo. But it's also important to, to remember, and this came out, um, I think, in, uh, in the first presentation, that human skulls didn't stop evolving 200,000 years ago. They continued to change um, by this process of genetic drift, but also in, re- in response to kind of local um, environmental circumstances, uh, local conditions, uh, things like these shifts in diet that we had with agriculture. And so you can see that there is a bunch of different factors that are kind of laid on top of each other that really allow us to sort of understand why the skulls of today's humans look different from other members of the genus Homo. So with that, I'd like to thank uh, all of you for listening, and I would like to thank um, my uh, uh, collaborators and funding sources and curators who gave access to collections, um, and thank you very much. Stone technology is actually an important component of our history. The data we have now is that stone tool production, not just tool use, tool making, emerged at 3.3 million years and was replaced by metal tools at about 4,000 years ago, although the process of replacement was a long one. It took about 2,000 years for people to abandon stone tool and turn into metallurgy. Now, the, the earliest um, sites documenting stone tool making are in East Africa and spread from 3.3 million years, that's the site of Lomekwi tree in Kenya, to Olduvai, 1.8, and uh, Tanzania. The earliest site is Lomekwi tree in Kenya, dated to 3.3 million years. It is a small assemblage, about 149 artifacts, um, including also material from the surface. The inclusion of material from the surface is supported by the refitting of a stone flake onto a core that comes from the excavation. Um, This is the refitted flake, and this is the core. The main technique uh, used is the so-called block-on-block technique, which is rather similar to the technique used by chimpanzees to break open nuts. Cores are rather simple, but there are some flakes that show scars of previous removals So the Lomequi flakes appear to have been produced intentionally, but there is no associated faunal remains, and we do not know what the flakes were used for. And generally, we can say that the cores have very few removals. Now, in later sites, the production of sharp stone edges is clearly associated with butchering of medium to uh, large animals. So it is important to note that chimpanzee hunt and kill prey, but that is typically smaller than 20 kilos, and have never been observed to use tools 
to break open skulls or bones. There you can see uh, chimpanzees eating a vervet monkey or a bush pig. And they eat it directly without using tools to break the bones or, or to get access to the brain. We have to say a few things about uh, the napping technique that is used uh, throughout these three million years of history. The most common technique is direct percussion with a stone hammer, uh, or uh, sometimes uh, later, direct percussion was done with a wood hammer, which would produce thinner and more regular removals. Much, much later, you would have pressure flaking using a pointed bone, which would produce very regular, uh, well-shaped edges. Bipolar flaking, you can see it in the, on the slide, is said to have been used at Lomequi. Tell you the truth, I think that the photos that according to the excavator illustrate bipolar flaking are pretty bad. I haven't seen a single example that I would call bipolar flaking, but well, we can forget about it. <laughs> the next and very important site is a locality in the Ledi Geraru area, Ethiopia, which is dated to 2.6 million years. There you have clearly flake production by direct percussion. In particular, you have a certain amount of cores and whole of broken flakes, and you can see that the, there is systematic production of sharp-edged tools, and we should be aware of the fact that this marks a fundamental shift in the dietary adaptations of early humans. At Ghana, another uh, of these sites in Ethiopia, which is broadly contemporaneous with Lady Geraru, uh, Lady Geraru, I'm not Ethiopian, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. You can see that on one hand, there is competent napping by direct percussion. You see clearly flakes that have all the characteristic of flakes done by humans. And you have an SEM image of cut marks done by a sharp-edged flake on a limb bone. This is quite important because the systematic flake production by direct percussion at Lady Geraru and the use of cutting tool edges on large animals at Ghana, about 2.6, 2.58, they are associated with an important behavioral change by early humans. That is the transport of food to a central point for sharing probably with other members of the group, thus creating a site where artifacts are made and bones are discarded. These sites are the basis of the archaeological record. And we are talking about hundreds of thousands of flakes of sites, which are these clusters of bones and stone tools. The, the following long history of stone tool making is punctuated by some important innovations. The emergence of stable patterns of flaking indicating planning and foresight at local LA, dated to 3.4 in Kenya. The emergence of tools with diversified morphology at Olduvai. Later, 
the adoption of the Levallois technology for the production of regular and thin-edged flakes about 400 to 300,000 years ago. The Levallois technology is used till the very end of the Mousterian. The use of afting, for which we have the best evidence about 200,000 years ago, and then the development of microlithic weapons. I am not going to be able to cover all these different kinds of uh, important innovations, but I want to point out to you, first of all, the site of local LA, the, the 2.34 million years, a relatively small excavation that, that yielded um, more than 2,000 lithic artifacts. And you can see from the refitting of the flakes on the core that there is a production of many flakes done very well, all very uh, good flakes in a, a clear pattern. And, the, and we are dealing now really with skilled nappers. We have to leave this million years and we have to move to a more recent innovations which I consider the, actually the most important advance in the technological evolution of Paleolithic humans, the hafting of stone tools. Joining a handle to a knife or scraper and attaching a sharp point to a wooden shaft made stone tools more efficient and easier to use. Now, how do we find in archaeology evidence of hafting? Well, the first and direct evidence would be to find intact hafted tools. Now, this is extremely rare. The few examples are very late in time, and what you can see here, for example, is a part of a spear that was thrown by a spear thrower from the Yukon in Canada, melting ice, and dated to 4,000 BP. In other words, archaeologists have to rely on indirect evidence of hafting. One is the presence of impact scars on um, uh, stone tools that were used as spear tips and also on the basis of these stone tools, indicating strong impact on bone and by rebound also removal of flakes from the bucket, that, from the base of the tool which is inserted in the socket. You have examples of two points, two steel bay points from Blombos, dated between 77 and 73,000 years ago, where you have uh, both the removal of a large flake from the tip, which is um, impact damage, and equally at the base, again, it's a kind of impact damage. But in reality, the best evidence that archaeologists can get is the finding of residue on the stone tools indicating the presence of adhesive material which can be uh, chemically analyzed and identified. The oldest stone tools that have adhesive, that is birch bark pitch, identified by gas chromatography and mass spectrometry, comes from the site of Campitello uh, in Tuscany, Italy. The flakes were found in association with remains of an elephant antiquus, and the site is dated to 200,000 years BP, 
eroded by stratigraphy. Now, what you see here is an imprint that probably is the imprint of the wooden handle. Not all countries uh, were using a birch bark pitch. They adapted to the environment that they have. For example, in Syria, at the site of Umel Tlel, dated to 70,000 years ago, the uh, flakes were uh, made in two points, and they were afted with bitumen. And the, uh, the presence of a levalua point embedded in the cervical vertebra of a wild ass is a clear indication that we are talking about spears, either thrown or thrusting, that have impacted the vertebra of this animal and left a fragment. In other countries, like in Italy, instead, after the use of the birch bark pitch at Campitello, uh, we find use of resin from conifers. In particular, there are 10 artifacts that we studied from two caves in Italy dating between 55 and 40,000 uh, years ago. They were afted with resin and the identified by the chemical analysis, gas chromatography and mass spectrometry, and you can see the white arrows indicate the residue that was um, chemically analyzed, and then uh, there are other R, which indicates other kinds of residues. You can see that these were not spear points. These were just tools. For example, what was hafted uh, down is a scraper, and upper you see a flake, which is unretouched, and yet it was flaked. It was um, hafted. And now I better talk about the end of the Stone Age, because again it deals with Italy, so it's my country. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay. <laughs> so the, uh, a lot of people know Etsy, the mummified corpse that was found in 1991 up in the Alps at 3,200 meters elevation on the border between Italy and Austria. And the site is by a few meters in Italian territory. <laughs> that was enough for the material to be taken from Austria and put in a museum in Bolzano. So you can go and visit the museum where it, uh, there is the mummy and all these tools because the fundamental interest of Etsy uh, is the tools that were found with him. They were found either around him or under him. And by the way, um, Etsy was 45 years old, was killed by an arrow, which is still in the left shoulder, left shoulder blade, and it is estimated by various doctors that this um, arrow uh, impacted a major artery, which is uh, near the clavicle, and so the guy died of blood loss. And it's also estimated that his body emerged from melting ice three days before discovery by two hikers. The um, Etsy's tools are very interesting. There is a one-hour arrow with a flint head, uh, it's only a portion of the shaft that you are seeing. And you can see that it is uh, uh, glued, the stuff is glued with probably pitch. Then you have a dagger or a flint knife if you want. 
together with its sheath. Down there, you see what is called the pressure flaker, which has an antler tip, a very small point, which was used for pressure flaking. You, as you can see, the, the gesture of pressure flaking. Now, the analysis of these um, stone tools by expert te uh, technologies told them, one, that the flint were coming from at least uh, two different regions south of the Alps. Two, that Etsy was not a very good flint napper. In fact, <laughs> you can see them. You can, you can see that they are pretty ugly, to tell you the truth, both the, the arrowhead and the flint knife. According to technologists, uh, Etsy did not do these tools. He just um, bought them or bartered them or exchanged them and they were already made. These are mostly bifacially done, and they are smaller now through use and continuous retouching by him. He was good at retouching and by pressure flaking, but making them, no. One thing that is particularly interesting about this uh, collection of, of tools is the copper axe. This is the beginning of metallurgy, and we are here at 3,300 B.C., now, the copper axe um, is made of yew wood and um, is <laughs> fixed into the haft with birch tar and bound with leather strap. Isotopic analysis indicates that the source of the metal is southern Tuscany, an area rich in copper deposits. The blade was made by smelting and casting in a mold. Clearly, a form of technology that has nothing to do with stone technology. And it was almost certainly acquired by the Iceman through trade. The incorporation of metallurgy into prehistoric society was a rather complex process. Stone tools continued to be made in Europe for at least 2,000 years after the Iceman. Flint imitations of copper daggers were made in Western Europe between 3,000 and 2,500 BC. You can see this is flint and this is copper. And the archaeologists don't know if the artisan were imitating copper blades or whether the copper blades were imitating the flint daggers. At any rate, in, in the Near East, stone tool continued to be used for butchering until 1200 BC. That is more or less the very end of the Stone Age. And there is, for final, a last interesting thing to be said about the end of the, the beginning of metallurgy and the end of the Stone Age is that when you mine copper or other metals from ores, um, you end up creating extensive dumps of mining debris. And also lead and copper contaminate the soil. So this end of the, uh, see the beginning of metallurgy really marks the beginning of a modern feature, pollution. Thank you for this opportunity to present some of my work. I'm going to talk about archaic introgression and what we have learned about introgression from these archaic hominins in the history of non-Africans and more recent work that talks about archaic introgression in African populations. So analyses of 
genetic data have shown the broad outlines of the evolution of modern humans. We know that modern humans evolved in Africa, and then there was this out-of-Africa exodus. What has happened in the last 10 years is this revolution in ancient DNA has given us access to genome sequences from two archaic hominins, Neanderthals and their sister species, the Denisovans. And by comparing these genome sequences to modern human genomes, we are learning about the interactions between archaic and modern human populations. For example, we now know that all non-Africans today trace a small proportion of their genetic ancestry to the Neanderthals. On the other hand, Oceanian populations, in addition to their Neanderthal ancestry, also trace some ancestry to the Denisovans. Now, because these introgression events introduced a large number of mutations within a short span of time into the human gene pool, there has been the hypothesis that these introgression events could have had a major impact on human biology. So this has motivated a number of efforts to better understand and connect these introgression events to impact on specific traits. So here's an example of an early effort that I was involved in where we were looking for genetic variants that predispose Mexican-Americans to type 2 diabetes. And this analysis revealed a novel genetic variant. And what we found was this variant had a unique geographic distribution where the risk variant was essentially absent in Africa. It was present at low frequencies outside of Africa, but it was particularly present at higher frequencies in most of the Americas. And when we compared the mutations that were present on this genetic variant to the Neanderthal genome, we found that this was likely to have introgressed into the modern human gene pool from the Neanderthal introgression event. So there have been several such other notable examples of specific introgressed variants that have affected biology. For example, there's been an introgression that has been documented in the STAT2 gene, which is particularly important in immune-related function. Another extremely exciting discovery was the EPAS1 gene. So this is a gene where specific mutations that have been found in Tibetans have been shown to be important in adapting to higher altitude living. And a recent analysis showed that this mutation that allows or contributes to higher altitude adaptation is introgressed from the Denisovan population. So to better understand the contribution of introgressed DNA to specific biological phenotypes, we'd like to go from understanding which genes might be introgressed to a more genome-wide assessment. So this has motivated efforts to build maps of introgressed DNA. What does that mean? So if you look at a population that is descended from an introgression between a modern human and an archaic, the genome of this population has a mosaic structure where there are parts of the genome that are inherited from the archaic population and others that are inherited from the modern human population. And because of the way recombination chops up the haplotypes that are passed down from one generation to the other, if you look at these genome sequences, the length of these introgressed segments are characteristic of the time before which the introgression occurred. 
So how do we go about building maps of archaic DNA? So we use statistical models which compare the genome sequence that we are interested in to an archaic genome as well as to a modern human genome. And by comparing the genetic variation that is shared between the test genome, the archaic genome, and the modern human genome, we can essentially build these maps that tell us what regions of this test genome trace their ancestry to the archaic population. So using these maps, we can begin to understand at a very fine scale how archaic ancestry is distributed, both across populations and across the genome. For example, we looked at a very diverse set of modern human individuals today, and we built maps of Neanderthal DNA in these populations. And what we show is we recover the signal where there is an enrichment of Neanderthal DNA in populations <coughs> residing outside of Africa. There is interesting variation within these populations, and I think Josh Aki's talk will touch upon the factors behind this variation. We can also build maps for Denisovan DNA, and we see an enrichment of Denisovan introgression in Oceanian populations, but we also see populations in East Asia which have small amounts of Denisovan introgressed material. Beyond looking genome-wide across populations, we can ask how does introgressed DNA vary along the genomes? And what we can see is that there is a wide variation in how much introgressed material a person carries as we move along their chromosomes. For example, there are places in the genome where there is an enrichment of introgressed DNA. In other words, where a lot of people present today carry introgressed DNA variants. For example, EPAS1 was the example that we started out with, has a high proportion of introgressed variants when we look at Tibetan populations. And these are variants introgressed from the Denisovan lineage. Here's another example. So this is a gene that's a particular outlier. It lies in this locus called the basonuclein gene, a gene that is known to be involved in skin-related function. And at this gene, present-day Europeans, about half of them carry the Neanderthal variant, compared to about 50,000 years ago when only about 2% of them carry the Neanderthal sequence. So we can try to figure out what might have resulted in an increase in the Neanderthal frequency at this gene, likely because this had some adaptive benefit. However, it's not the case that all introgressed Neanderthal variants are necessarily adaptive. Indeed, we think that genome-wide, most introgressed Neanderthal or Denisovan DNA is deleterious. For example, there are large regions of the genome which we call deserts of archaic ancestry, where no present-day human carries either Neanderthal or Denisovan DNA. So these are particularly interesting because these are places in the genome which seem to be resistant to introgression, and potentially they harbor mutations that are responsible for the modern human phenotype. So here is one particularly ex interesting example of a desert. This is a desert which is resistant to both Neanderthal and Denisovan introgression, and it overlaps a gene called FOXP2. So FOXP2 is this famous gene that has been shown to be involved and important in speech and language. So now moving beyond non-Africans, we'd like to switch our attention to introgression in Africa. 
So the reason why our understanding of introgression outside of Africa has been so advanced is because of the availability of whole genome sequences from archaic populations like the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. But once we turn our attention to Africa, the situation becomes a lot less clear. The reason is we don't have ancient DNA from archaic hominin groups. It would be wonderful to have them, but the technology hasn't yet been successful in extracting ancient DNA. So what we decided to do was to look for signals of introgression in Africa without needing access to ancient archaic hominin genomes. So to do this, we adapted two complementary approaches. So one is an approach that looks at genome-wide data, and it counts up the different classes of mutations that a person carries along their genomes. And it turns out that these classes of mutations are indicative or characteristic of the history of archaic introgression. The second line of evidence involves building these maps, but doing so without recourse to an archaic reference genome. So let's talk about the first line of evidence. So the statistical summary of the data we're going to be looking at is something called the site frequency spectrum. In a brief way, the way to think of the site frequency spectrum is we are looking at positions along a person's genome, and we are counting up what kinds of mutations occur at a given position. So here we have genomes from Africa, we have the Neanderthal genome, and we have the genome from a chimpanzee. We're going to focus on those positions where there's a difference in the state carried by the Neanderthal and the chimpanzee. And at those positions, we're going to see what count of African genomes carry a state that matches the Neanderthal. So for example, at this position, the Neanderthal does not match the chimpanzee. And when you look at the Africans, they have two copies of the mutation that matches the Neanderthal. When you look at this position, the Neanderthal again does not match the chimpanzee, and the Africans carry three copies of the mutation that matches the Neanderthal. So we go along this genome and tabulate this statistical summary, which we call the conditional site frequency spectrum. Now, why do we do this? It turns out that there is some population genetic theory that tells us what we should expect to see in this statistical summary of the data. For example, if Africans and Neanderthals split and never interbred, then this summary of the data is uniformly distributed across all mutational classes. So now what do we see in the data? When we look at the West African population, the Yoruba, the conditional site frequency spectrum, which here is the blue dots, are far from uniform. They have this U-shaped pattern. We looked at other West African populations, and we find the same characteristic U-shaped pattern. So in other words, at least a simple model where Africans and Neanderthals split and went their own way does not fit the data. We then asked, could this be explained by other models of human history? For example, we have a fairly good understanding of the relationship between Africans and archaic populations. And could this potentially explain? And we find that, again, current models of human history do not offer a good enough fit to the data that we observe. So then we 
explored additional models that are more complicated, which involve different levels of introgression into the African population. For example, we asked whether there was structure within Africa. This is quite possible, given all the evidence about deep structure within different African populations. Is it possible that there was introgression from a Neanderthal-related population into the Africans? Or is it possible that there is a super-archaic population that introgressed into Africa? And for each of these models, we try to figure out which of them best explains our signal. And the model that does explain the signal of the conditional site frequency spectrum is one where there was introgression into the African population from a super-archaic population that split off prior to the split between Neanderthals and modern humans. So this is neither Neanderthal or Denisovan, and so we term this a ghost-archaic population. And the key thing to remember here is this is actually quite deeply diverged, farther more than the Neanderthals and the Denisovans compared to the modern humans. Now we can be more quantitative about this analysis, and we can try to figure out when this, did this population split off, when did it come back and interbreed, and what proportion of archaic ancestry is present in Africans today. And so we did further analyses, and these are estimates with quite wide uncertainties. But what we estimate is a date of about 600,000 years for the split time, and an interbreeding time of around 43,000 years. So this is still fairly recent interbreeding event in the history of the African population. Further, we estimate a fairly substantial contribution of this archaic ghost lineage of about 11%, so compared to the Neanderthal and the Denisovan introgression event, which are of the order of a couple of percent. So we try to have a complementary line of evidence to convince ourselves that this was plausible. And to do this, we went back and tried to extract segments of DNA in, our, the, in the African population that could potentially arise from this ghost archaic. So to do this, we had to have a statistical model which does not require an archaic population because we don't have this reference genome. So we validated this model. We showed that it works under different settings. And then we applied it to the West African Yoruba. And we got these segments of archaic DNA, which we went back and asked, is this closely related to one of the genomes that we have sequenced data from? So we compared the introgressed DNA segments in Africa to hunter-gatherer genomes, genomes from pygmy populations, so these are populations which have been shown to have complex interactions with the West African populations that we've analyzed, and finally to known archaic genomes like Neanderthals and Denisovans. And so what we're showing here is a measure of divergence. So on the left, you're closely related. On the, on the right, you're further related. And what we find are that these archaic segments, compared to other non-archaic segments, are not particularly closely related to any of these populations that we have genomes from. So what is this population? We don't know. And so this is one of the questions that we'd like to be able to answer going forward. So just to summarize, there is clear evidence that there is archaic introgression within and outside Africa. And we have an increasing complexity in the picture of interactions between modern humans and archaics. 
So John Hawks also talked about this preprint that came out last week from Alan Rogers' group, which showed that there are additional archaic introgression events in human history. And so a big question for us is to have a holistic picture which puts together these different introgression events, asks whether some of these are coming from the same population or are these distinct archaic groups. This is a challenging task, and to be able to do this, we need to analyze diverse modern and ancient genomes from Africa. We don't have ancient archaic genomes, but we do have ancient genomes from other modern human populations. And we need to do this in the context of these more realistic models of history, which take into account deep introgression events. And finally, the statistical models that we've talked about are making certain assumptions, which are fairly simplistic, and those need to be extended to handle this complexity. All right. With that, I'd like to uh, acknowledge uh, my student, Arun, who's, who's done a lot of this work on ghost archaic introgression and funding, and I'd be happy to take questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.